0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we hear from Fidelity's digital assets strategist, Megan Chen, as she walks us through what's currently happening in the digital assets markets and what is driving crypto assets higher despite the negative headlines. Megan speaks to Colin Randall, director of research, and says January saw a strong start for crypto, with Bitcoin and Ether prices going up. Now, despite the negative headlines, crypto assets such as Bitcoin and Ethereum have seen significant gains, 75% and 60%, respectively, in the first third of 2023, and outperforming traditional asset classes. So far this year, prices have rebounded for two reasons. Megan explains, risk assets performed well in January, as well as stocks and the Nasdaq, creating a general tailwind for crypto. Also, the collapse of regional banks in the U.S. also created a spike in Bitcoin. When vulnerabilities arise in the traditional finance system, they tend to be a tailwind for crypto prices, especially for Bitcoin, as it is the largest and most established cryptocurrency. Megan also discusses the potential of Central Bank Digital Currencies, European Parliament's recent vote to pass markets in crypto assets, and she also gives an update on the Shanghai Capella merger. This podcast was recorded on May 5, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates.
1: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Colin Randall, Director of Research at Fidelity Investments Canada. We're about a third of the way into 2023 and the media headlines covering digital assets continue to carry a relatively negative tone, recalling 2022's market declines and numerous crypto corporate implosions. And yet year to date, crypto prices appear to be telling a very different story key digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum seeing significant gains of 75% and 60% respectively, meaningfully outperforming many traditional asset classes. So what's behind this apparent disconnect? What's driving crypto assets higher despite the negative headlines? To help us understand what's happening in the digital asset markets, we're joined today by Megan Chen, Digital Asset Strategist at Fidelity Investments Canada. In her role, Megan is responsible for the research and development of new alternative products, including digital assets related solutions. And she's a digital assets subject matter expert at Fidelity. Megan, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, a note before we begin today's session is part of a series of quarterly updates and will focus primarily on recent market trends, their drivers, and the implications for advisors and investors. If you're interested in finding more fundamental information about digital assets and blockchain technology in general, please reach out to your sales team or visit fidelity.ca. Also, you'll find Megan's latest quarterly blockchain newsletter on fidelity.ca. So Megan, maybe we could start with the markets. Um, Global crypto market cap, so the capitalization or value of all crypto assets, uh, stands at about just under 1.3 trillion USD today, and that's up about 50% year to date. Now, of course, that's still below where we were a year ago this time, about 30% below uh, the year ago uh, point. But clearly, we're seeing some momentum to the upside. So, could you tell us a little bit about how Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other crypto assets have been performing this uh, this so far this year?
2: Sure. So crypto had a really strong start to the year with Bitcoin and Ether prices going up more than 40% and 30% respectively in January. But this is, of course, following a decline in Q4 of 2022 and more broadly throughout 2022 of crypto prices due to the collapse of several crypto related businesses, most famously, Uh, the crypto exchange FTX, which collapsed in November of last year. And so far this year, um, prices have rebounded. I think two reasons for the January rebound. One is that more broadly speaking, risk assets performed well in January. So stocks performed well, the Nasdaq performed well. So that was the general tailwind supporting crypto prices in January. The second reason is hopefully that investors were more focused on the fundamental difference between centralized crypto companies, such as FTX, and the underlying uh, blockchain networks, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. So that was January. And in February and March, there were various bouts of volatility. So in early February, around February 9th, there was a drawdown in crypto prices. Um, So Bitcoin and Ether both fell by about 5%. And the driver behind that was the SEC, charged crypto exchange Kraken uh, for offering unregistered securities in the form of their crypto staking program. And we can talk more about regulation later on, but this is particularly relevant for Ether because uh, as we talked about last time, Ether now operates on a proof of state consensus mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so this charge by the SEC introduces a certain degree of regulatory un- uncertainty around uh, retail staking services in the u.s now in march we had of course the uh, banking crisis in the u.s mm-hmm. um, the collapse of several regional banks in the u.s including two banks that were particularly relevant to crypto so signature bank and silver Gate bank and these two banks were the partners of several large crypto firms including the likes of Coinbase, Gemini, Galaxy Digital. And so their collapse really triggered concerns around uh, whether there will be increased regulatory scrutiny around banks providing services to crypto companies. You know, what does this mean for crypto companies that want to access banking services going forward? So that caused a certain drawdown in early March. But then starting from around March 10th onwards, Mm -hmm. there there was a general rally, both in crypto and in stocks. There was a a series of interventions in the banking system which calmed calmed investors um, to a certain degree. And the other factor was that there was more broadly speculation that because of these vulnerabilities in the banking system, that the US Fed would be less aggressive going forward in terms of rate hikes. So that was the general backdrop supporting crypto prices and stocks um, starting from mid-March onwards, and more specifically to crypto. So vulnerabilities in the US banking system actually supported Bitcoin prices, because the point of Bitcoin, again, is to be an alternative and decentralized money system. And so when we see vulnerabilities arise in the traditional system, in the traditional finance system, that does tend to be a tailwind for uh, crypto prices and more, generally, specifically to Bitcoin, because it is the most, you know, it's the largest one, it's the most well-established one. Now for Ether, uh, Ether prices have rallied pretty strongly um, from mid-March onwards to about mid-April. This is uh, largely also driven uh, by the completion of a major software upgrade on the Ethereum network called the Shanghai Capella upgrade, Mm -hmm. and we discussed in our last webcast that Ethereum had moved from the proof of work mechanism to the proof of stake consensus mechanism. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the follow up upgrade to the completion of that. It was successful. Mm -hmm. So that has driven the price of Ether. And so so far this year, you know, Bitcoin is up, as you mentioned, you know, 75 percent. Ether is up 60%. So we, we are doing well.
1: Well, that's, that's great to hear. And I would, would like to talk a little bit more about uh, Shanghai in a moment. But um, part of the research that you produce on a quarterly basis uh, includes a correlation analysis. And I think what you've noticed recently anyway, there seems to be a declining correlation between digital assets and traditional assets. Could you talk about that?
2: Sure. So, yes, at the end of last uh, quarter, um, Q4 2022, if we look at the 90, day, 90 business day correlation between Bitcoin and stocks, that was around 60%. And uh, at the end of Q1, that went down to about
3: 40%.
2: And so I think the main message here is that if you look at, say, the last 10 years, the correlation between crypto and stocks has generally picked up. But that's to be expected because more investors are familiar with crypto and investing in crypto. So the investor base of crypto and traditional assets have become increasingly overlapped. And so from that perspective, it makes sense that crypto is gonna become more correlated than it was when it was very, very nascent. But that being said, uh, hopefully investors will still see that there are very distinct drivers of crypto prices. And so, so far this year, for example, we've seen the Ethereum software upgrade and that is just one of those idiosyncratic factors that's just gonna cause that decrease in correlation, another being, you know, Bitcoin being an independent monetary system differs it from the traditional financial system, which saw difficulties. And so, again, that is like another reason why the prices may diverge and the correlation may decrease. But I think, you know, generally speaking, Bitcoin and Ether prices will probably continue to be at least fairly reactive to macroeconomic figures and the correlation with risk assets will probably still exist, but hopefully on top of that, there'll always be idiosyncratic factors driving it as well.
1: Right. So it sounds like there are, you know, the macro factors that have been driving crypto markets as well as traditional markets continue to play a very important role for digital assets. Yeah. But as you mentioned, there have been some important developments uh, in the digital asset space that, um, you know, may be driving prices more independently of of the broader market. So maybe one of those events, Could we talk about the Shanghai upgrade? Could you uh, provide a recap to the viewers of what this was and how this fits into the overall Ethereum roadmap?
2: Sure, so last, during our last webcast, we talked about the merge, which happened in September of 2022. And that, again, was the transition from the Ethereum network from a proof-of-work consensus mechanism to a proof-of-stake consensus mechanism, which basically, um, high-level summary, allows for validators to stake their Ether in the Ethereum network and to earn rewards as part of the uh, consensus mechanism of the network. So what Shanghai Capella, um, which was completed on April 12th, allow validators to now do is to actually withdraw the ether that they've staked because previously to that they couldn't. And it is important to make the distinction between partial withdrawals and full withdrawals. So these are the two types of withdrawals that validators can currently put through. Partial withdrawals, you can think about it kind of like as uh, withdrawing the interest on your, that you've earned on your principal. It's basically withdrawing the rewards that you've made on your fundamental stake without withdrawing your fundamental stake so exactly like again withdrawing interest and keeping your principal um, still there um, as as a future base for interest generation for you there's also full withdrawals and that is the withdrawal of your full stake so you're not participating anymore in the consensus now there is a limit to withdrawals so uh, there are 512 partial withdrawals allowed per epoch which is every about six minutes Mm -hmm. if 512 seems random to you. That's actually two to the power of nine. And side note, um, lots of numbers on the Ethereum consensus mechanism just has to do with powers of two. Mm -hmm. So 512 partial withdrawals, a subset of which is full withdrawals. Mm -hmm. Now full withdrawals are limited. Currently they're capped at eight validators per epoch. Mm -hmm. So only eight validators can fully withdraw their stake per epoch, which again is about six minutes. Mm -hmm. And this is really to try and control um, the, the traffic. So to make sure that there's no huge outflows or huge inflows from a validator state perspective, Mm -hmm. now it's currently eight, but that number can actually go up or down depending on how large the current base of active validators are. So if the number of current, um, active validators goes up, Mm -hmm. then it'll be more than eight Mm -hmm. and vice versa if it goes down. Mm -hmm. And so far, uh, since the upgrade happened on April 12th, we haven't seen actually a very large movement in the uh, percentage of total Ether staked. So it's remained at about 15%. So, I mean, I think it's good that there's stability. But for those of you out there that are either, you know, investing uh, staked, are staking Ether in the future or have already staked Ether, just to keep in mind that because of this limit to withdrawals, you could end up waiting, you know, several weeks or even several months um, if the network is busy to withdraw the ETH that you have staked. So currently, the withdrawal queue is about two weeks okay. for full withdrawals. For
1: full withdrawals, okay. So, so for some investors, that might mean if they started staking with the launch of the Beacon Chain, I think that's back in
3: 2020,
1: 2020 you know, they've obviously had their ETH locked up yeah. until this most recent development. And so if they are looking to liquidate it may take a little bit of time to do that, but I think you know, leading up to this development, there was some expectation in the market that there'd be a lot of demand to get mm. to the to the to the exits. What are you seeing on that front?
2: So as I mentioned, so far at least, it's the, the total amount staked mm. um, as a percentage of total ether supply mm. it has remained at about fifteen percent before mm. and after the upgrade. Okay. So that's positive in the sense that uh, you know, as you mentioned, people were. There were concerns that maybe there will be massive outflows and so on, and well, so far we haven't seen that. And um, but yeah, it is worth pointing out that of course one of the factors that have been um, have been driving withdrawals Mm -hmm. is Kraken trying to unstake all their ether, and this goes back to you know what we were discussing before about how um, the in February the SEC charged Kraken with. Uh, offering unregistered crypto securities in in the form of um, their staking program, and mm-hmm. as a result of that, Kraken actually had to shut down all their staking services in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And Kraken has about one million of Ether staked on behalf of clients, mm-hmm. and they'll be trying to withdraw a lot of that um, as, over the next couple of months.
1: Right, right. Well, and so there was an anticipation that we'd see a lot of sell pressure as a result of this, but it, as we get, you know, we mentioned at the top of the the program, we actually seen the price of Ether climb uh, year to date. So. Uh, perhaps running counter to people's expectations, there have been net inflows. Well, not net inflows, I should say, there have been inflows into the protocol uh, at the same time. So, um, well, very interesting to watch that. Um, You mentioned Shanghai and Capella. Um, I've heard that referred to as Chappella. What's the difference between the two?
2: So um, actually, this is a little technical, but basically the Ethereum network has two layers. Mm -hmm. One is called the execution layer and one is called the consensus layer. Mm -hmm. So the consensus layer is basically the layer that manages the consensus mechanism, the consensus uh, process. And the execution layer is the layer that handles all the transaction processing. So it's the same upgrade. It's just that Shanghai is the name attributed to the upgrade of the software on the execution layer, okay. and Capella is the name of the upgrade uh, to upgrade the software on the consensus layer. So that's why okay. it's like Shanghai Capella.
1: Very very technical, right? Yeah, it all. Tech- it all together. Yes, in that's fine. Okay, excellent. So actually, we have a question here regarding the uh, Bitcoin dominance right now relative to Ether and other uh, altcoins, and I think in light of this important development for Ethereum countering that, I'm not countering, but, you know, at the same time, we're seeing really strong performance of Bitcoin. How is that dominance of Bitcoin uh, sort of developing this year?
2: So I would say over the last like, if you take a longer horizon over the last five, seven years, that dominance of Bitcoin over um, all the other altcoins in the market, all the other cryptos in the market has has decreased over time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fair to expect just because, you know, Bitcoin was the first to launch it, there were no competitors in the market and then eventually of course as ne- other networks like ethereum has was introduced the market dominance has gone down but it's still um around 40% i think it's still fairly fairly dominant um and i think that's as a function of the fact that bitcoins the centralized network, the, the the width and the breadth of its adoption in terms of nodes, in terms of developers, in terms of users, it, it's very hard to beat those network effects that right. Bitcoin has accumulated.
1: Right. Well, and actually just wanted to talk a little bit about its recent um, Bitcoin daily transactions uh, recently hit an all time high, I think this mm-hmm. week. And that's being driven by a new protocol uh, or a new standard on the Bitcoin uh, blockchain BRC20 or Bitcoin mm-hmm. Ordinals. Can yes. you talk about what
2: that means? Sure. So BRC20 is actually sort of like a side development that spun off of Bitcoin ordinals. And Bitcoin ordinals was a protocol that was launched back in January. Mm -hmm. And what this allows, what this protocol allows is for people to inscribe arbitrary data, whether that be images, video or text, inscribe arbitrary data onto individual units of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So the smallest possible tradable unit of Bitcoin is called a Satoshi. So what this allows is you can inscribe, say, an image on on a Satoshi. So for those of you that are familiar with NFTs, sort of, you're probably thinking that sounds a lot like NFTs. And that's exactly what Bitcoin Ordinals was introduced to do. It was introduced to introduce NFT-like, Things, units um, to the Bitcoin blockchain, yeah. which is interesting because, of course, we go back to why Bitcoin was created and the original philosophy of Bitcoin. It wasn't really to be a platform like Ethereum, which is more diversified, a general platform for applications. The point of Bitcoin was to stay simple and just be a payments-focused network. Right. And so when That's why the introduction of Bitcoin ordinals is actually a little controversial. Hmm. Some people think, well, you're kind of going against Bitcoin's original vision. And also this idea of like, you're inscribing arbitrary data on Satoshi's, that challenges, it it complicates Bitcoin's fungibility.
3: Hmm.
2: And it may also clog up traffic on the Bitcoin network because these things are huge. Like Hmm. the traffic it takes up, the size of the data that can be ascribed on these things, Hmm. it, it can potentially clog up a lot of volume and increased transaction fees and so on. So it's been controversial, we'll, we'll see what happens. But one thing I do want to point out is that as opposed to NFTs found on platforms like Ethereum, one advantage of Bitcoin ordinals is that they are held, the images, for example, the underlying content are held directly on the Bitcoin blockchain. And this contrasts with say a digital art NFT stored on Ethereum, a lot of which um, the underlying data of a lot of these digital art NFTs, for example, on Mm -hmm. Ethereum Mm -hmm. are actually stored off chain. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they're not, so you're, what's stored on the Ethereum network is just like sort of a link that points to where the actual underlying content is stored, Mm -hmm. not the underlying content itself. And so that's been one of the concerns about NFTs on Ethereum and and some other similar networks. And this is now sort of, well, Bitcoin Ordinals doesn't have this issue. I do want to point out that yeah, some NFTs on Ethereum do also store it on chain. It's just that most of them don't.
1: So. right right. So so this is really adding new potential applications on the Bitcoin blockchain, yeah. the oldest of the cryptocurrency blockchains. And do you see that sort of challenging second place Ethereum for its dominance? I mean, do you see greater dominance for Bitcoin as a result of this development?
2: I think so. Like one of the one of the advantages, um, so of course, we've talked about the fact that it's controversial and some people don't like it because it goes against, uh, again, Bitcoin's original vision. But some people think that this is positive because originally Bitcoin was very simple compared to Ethereum, and now it has this use case that Ethereum also has. So you could have uh, NFT use cases on Bitcoin as well Mm -hmm. as Ethereum. But going back to say BRC20, for example, um, the the underlying architecture, even though, yes, now we can potentially have NFT-like objects on Bitcoin, The underlying architecture and the technology of bitcoin is is very very different fundamentally from say an ethereum Mm -hmm. and so brc20 is not equivalent to erc20 which is the equivalent fungible token standard on ethereum Mm -hmm. you can't interact with smart contracts for example with brc20 not in the same way at least Mm -hmm. so it's not that bitcoin is overnight all of a sudden turning into ethereum Mm -hmm. that's not what's happening i think We'll see where it goes. It's still very, very nascent. BRC20 only came out very, very recently. Ordinals just came out at the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. And we'll probably need at least like a year to see what the adoption curve looks like, what the use cases will look like going forward and Mm -hmm. see whether Bitcoin will really uh, end up challenging a lot of Ethereum's use cases or not. Okay,
1: fascinating. Um, There's a question about Ethereum's transition to proof of stake and wondering if you see potential issues or risks related to centralization that might come with a proof-of-stake versus a um, proof-of-work consensus mechanism that Bitcoin has?
2: Yes, so both types of consensus mechanisms have centralization risks. Mm -hmm. And so in proof-of-work, for example, which is AKA uh, called mining, I'm sure many of you have heard of these mining farms where you have one centralized entity that holds a lot of the hash power, a lot of the mining power. But that being said, one one caveat to that is that for Bitcoin mining, um, even though, say you'll look at a pie chart and it looks like a lot of the the mining power is dominated by two or three players, Mm -hmm. uh, these mining entities are actually uh, made up of many individual miners that are just kind of pooling together to hedge against the downside risk of just a long time without getting any new Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's more of a pooling kind of thing going on with proof of stake, uh, proof of work, Mm -hmm. sorry. With proof of stake, I would say that again, like proof of work, there are centralization risks. Personally, I think the centralization risks are more more difficult to overcome in proof of stake. Mm -hmm. So most people, for example, right now don't um stake ether directly they they stake through a staking service provider like kraken which you know was was shut down by the sec in the us uh, or coinbase or uh, there are also liquid staking protocols like lido which actually holds 33 or around about a third of the total uh, amount of ether staked. Mm -hmm. So yes, there there are certain um, centralization risks to staking that I think are a little bit harder to overcome than the ones in in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Another thing um, with staking, and with Ethereum more generally in terms of centralization, is that Ethereum nodes are just more onerous to run than Bitcoin nodes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that make Bitcoin so more decentralized i would say than many other blockchain networks is that it's relatively lighter to run a bitcoin node mm-hmm. because bitcoin nodes are not as computationally um re- they don't mm-hmm. require as much competent- com- computational effort mm-hmm. right because the bitcoin blockchain is so much simpler mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. short complete um, mm-hmm. right, which means that you mm-hmm. can't run arbitrary programs on there right. So uh, blockchain networks like Ethereum are turning complete. So on average, it's just, you know, it's harder, it's more owners, it takes more resources to run an Ethereum node. And so blockchains like Ethereum, on top of the fact that they are, uh, you know, already m- more complex than, say, a blockchain network like Bitcoin. And now they've moved to proof of stake. Mm-hmm. There are certainly quite a few centralization risks uh, with regard to Ethereum. Right. And I think last time we did talk about the introduction of the the banning of Tornado Cash mm-hmm. by uh, the, the U.S. Treasury, and what was interesting about that was that we saw centralization risks come into play, and with you know many staking, for, well, with many um, node providers mm-hmm. actually s- blocking transactions to um, to interact with Tornado Cash, right, right. and it's so censoring
1: transactions, yeah, censoring point
2: transactions point. to Tornado Cash. So, yeah, um, centralization is one of, one of the biggest concerns right now. It's actually mm-hmm. a very, very good point. It's, it's probably the thing that I'm most concerned about okay. besides regulation.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. well um, great great <laughs> question. Thanks very much for that. Maybe we could, if we could talk a little bit about regulation. There's been some important um, legislation passed in uh, the EU yes. uh, called uh, Markets and Crypto Assets or MiCA. Could you talk about the importance of Mika?
2: Sure. So last month, the European Parliament voted to pass markets and crypto assets, making the European Union the first major jurisdiction to pass wide ranging crypto legislation. So markets and crypto assets, along with another regulation that was also passed last month called Transfer Transfer Funds Regulation, which is related to any anti-money laundering, Mm -hmm. uh, both of these sets of regulations are expected to take effect in 2024. And so mika really focuses on regulating centralized crypto asset service providers, and so these this would include crypto exchanges, crypto custodians, uh, stablecoin issuers, and the like. It, however, doesn't uh, the the regulation is more or less silent on areas such as DeFi or decentralized autonomous organizations. Although it does specify that crypto services that are provided through fully decentralized means that don't require any intermediary are beyond the scope of the regulation. So at surface value, at least, it looks like this is quite a friendly approach that is amenable to the fundamentals of what blockchain is uh, supposed to be all about, which is decentralization. Because you can imagine it would be impractical to try and impose the same kind of stringent regulations on decentralized entities as well as centralized ones
1: right right yeah. well there's been some observers that have referred to mika as a potential template for global crypto regulation what do you think of that uh, perspective
2: i think centralized entities certainly needs to be regulated um and of course we've seen companies like ftx blow up last year mm-hmm. and regulation like mika could work to prevent similar blobs in the future by introducing governance standards, transparency standards, capital requirements, reserve requirements for these entities that are essentially serving as access points for investors and users and giving them a facilitating their way into cryptocurrency and blockchain. So I think these entities certainly need to be regulated. I'm very happy that, you know, the regulation has passed and that's going to take effect. I think it would be a good, base for, you know, uh, future regulation, future legislation. And um, they are, like I mentioned, the first jurisdiction to introduce this kind of wide-ranging crypto legislation. So we'll we'll see its impact on future legislation.
1: Well, I want want to ask you, closer to home, the CSA, the Canadian Securities Administrators, published a notice in February uh, requiring unregistered crypto trading platforms to file a pre-registration um, undertaking a PRU, mm-hmm. could you talk about what that means and and what have we seen sort of develop uh, since that uh, that announcement?
2: Sure. So after the collapse of all those crypto-related businesses in twenty twenty two, the CSA published in February um, a regulation that uh, introduces more stringent requirements mm-hmm. on companies that are seeking uh, registration in Canada as a crypto platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would apply to, say, again, crypto exchanges and the like and the uh the requirements are that it restricts certain types of activities so it restricts for example the segregation um uh, it restricts the rehypothecation of client assets and ensures sort of the segregation of client assets Mm -hmm. it restricts margin um, and leverage and it restricts um, proprietary the usage of proprietary tokens and so on so again all this is to try and make sure that FTX-like blow-ups are less likely to happen going forward.
1: Right. Yeah. We've seen some big names uh, sign up already or make their submissions uh, in the last couple of months, names like Coinbase and so on, so they can continue operating in, in Canada. Interesting to see there. Um, there is a question around central bank and digital currencies. Mm-hmm. What are your perspectives on that? We only have a couple minutes left.
2: So this is an interesting topic. I, I've gotten quite a few questions from advisors on this topic. Mm-hmm. So central bank digital currencies or, or CBDCs are digital currencies that are issued um, and controlled by central banks. Now, currently over 100 countries around the world, uh, representing over 90% of global GDP, are looking at the potential of launching a CBDC. So just at least exploring whether that be even just early stage, early stage research as to what that could look like. Mm-hmm. A handful of uh, com- countries have launched a CBDC. So, the Bahamas, for example, Nigeria, Jamaica. And um, many other countries are in the pilot stages. So, this includes countries such as China, India, Australia.
3: Mm.
2: China, perhaps, being a, the most famous example. They're quite advanced in, in their pilot phase of a CBDC. And I believe civil servants in China are now being paid um, by the Digital Yuan, which is the name of their CBDC. Now, certainly CBDCs have certain advantages, right? They can, in, they can improve uh, efficiency and transparency of payments. They can uh, improve financial inclusion. They can allow the programmability of ordinary money. But one concern is that CBDCs could increase the power of governments and central banks. It would allow governments to survey and monitor their citizens more and more um, to the point that they can see every single Transaction that happens, and the idea of many CBDCs is to just get rid of paper cash, so that all money is traceable,
3: mm-hmm.
2: like forever. Right. <laughs> it, right. Right. And yeah, sure, that has certain benefits, but mm-hmm. you know, some people are you know reasonably concerned that um, the 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 increase in the power of governments. And I think this just really shows the difference between CBDCs and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I think going forward, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see the coexistence of the two. But I feel more comfortable, at least personally, that Bitcoin and currencies like Bitcoin and Ether exist, these alternative independent systems exist, given that CBDCs may may be launched going forward.
1: Well, fascinating tension between the decentralized and the centralized technologies, and clearly uh, always so much to talk about. So really, thank you very much for joining us again today on Philly Connects, Megan. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.